When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. No president should be able to sustain boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. This isn't really about the economic policy. This is about the coronavirus. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We must use every tool possible to defeat this assault on women's reproductive rights. This is a steady growth that we're seeing here in our economy, you know, over the last three months. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. There are nine days to figure out how to keep the government funded, and a new plan appears to be set to pass the House a short time from now, but Republicans say it's DOA in the Senate, so the clock keeps ticking, even as Democrats stare down a list of deadlines on President Biden's economic agenda. And we'll talk about it all coming up with Congressman Henry Cuellar, Democrat from Texas, where there's been a lot of news lately. Later, President Biden speaks his first address to the U.N. General Assembly. You heard it on Bloomberg Radio. We'll unpack the politics and policy behind the speech with David Tafuri, former State Department official. Our panel for the hour, Jim Kessler of Third Way. And we'll be talking as well with John Sidalides, State Department advisor now with Trilogy. But from the big vote set for tonight in the U.S. House, a stopgap bill we talked about this time yesterday would fund government operations until December, pay for hurricane damage, resettling refugees from Afghanistan, and as you also learned here, suspend the debt ceiling until after the midterms. We talk about it all with Congressman Henry Cuellar, a Democrat from Texas, who joins us on the line. Congressman, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much. I hope you're doing fine. Absolutely, and I understand it has been a grind to get to this vote today on funding the government, Congressman. It includes... A lot of other items, including a suspension of the debt ceiling, we understand. What's your feeling on this approach? Are you a yes vote? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think uh, uh, doing the CR, I'm 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 an appropriator, so we have to do this. I I certainly don't want to see a government shutdown, number one. Number two, on the debt ceiling, as you know, this is something that there will be severe repercussions to the U.S. economy, and we all need to do this. And it's unfortunate because sometimes people look at who is the president. Uh, Like last time we had Republicans, you know, when President Trump was there, it was okay for them to raise it. Now there's a Democrat, so it's not okay to to raise it. Uh, So to me, it doesn't matter who the president is. Uh, We have to do the responsible thing, and that is do a CR. And then, of course, doing the continuing resolution, make sure there's no government shutdown, mm-hmm. making sure that we uh, suspend the debt or raise the, the debt ceiling. Of course, we keep hearing the same stuff I'm sure you're hearing, that Republicans, beginning with the leadership, are for the most part 
uh, in lockstep in, in, in not voting to do anything to the debt ceiling, uh, lift it, suspend it, or otherwise. I just wonder if Democrats are prepared to go it alone on this or how exactly that would work if this continuing resolution does not get through the Senate. You know, Democrats have always, I mean, I think most of us have supported it, no matter if it's Democrat or Republican president. You know, we provided a, um, Republicans help uh, when, uh, when uh, Trump was there, Bush was there. And of course, you know, it doesn't matter who's there. So as Democrats, we have, um, you know, we're in the majority and we have to show that we can govern. And darn it, uh, that means that we have to take certain votes. And, you know, some people see it as a tough vote for me, uh, making sure that the government doesn't shut down, uh, making sure that we don't uh, have severe consequences if we don't raise the debt ceiling, then that's an easy vote for me. House Democrats are still balancing, of course, the infrastructure bill with the looming reconciliation bill. And as one of the moderate Democrats who held Nancy Pelosi to an infrastructure vote by the 27th of September, it's not lost on us, Congressman, that that is on Monday. I wonder if you think we're going to make it. We we heard today from a member of the leadership, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who talked about this. Here's what he said. My understanding that the majority leader had indicated we are moving toward the 27th and the plan uh, is to hold to that agreement. So hold to that agreement. He said in that same news conference, though, that it could take several weeks. Does it matter to you that it's Monday or at some point in the very near future? Well, you know, there was an agreement, uh, two things that were done uh, when I was group of nine. And one of the things that I insisted was not only have a date to vote on this bipartisan infrastructure, but what I asked for was, and and, and the group, uh, all of us have supported this, is that whatever we vote on the reconciliation that we don't ping pong it, that is, we vote for something high, the Senate comes in with something low, uh, we take certain tough votes. I'd rather have something where it is a vote that both the House and the Senate can vote and pass it on the first time. To me, that's important because I saw what happened in 2009 and 2010, where some of us uh, were asked to take very tough votes. You know, I'm not going to fall off the cliff unless if I know that that vote is going to be uh, something important and it's going to pass. I want to see the vote on the 27th. Uh, if somebody wants to vote against it, then they have to defend that vote. Uh, so I'm, I am in, uh, in support of that. On the reconciliation, uh, I don't think it can be ready by that time, uh, quite honestly, just because of the logistics, uh, because part of that agreement was that it's got to be something that all 50 senators, every single 50 senator can support. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've been in contact with uh, several senators. I don't think we're there yet. Well, there goes the there's the rub, Congressman. If if there's no uh, reconciliation bill ready for the 27th, then the progressives say they don't vote for infrastructure. So are we headed for a collision here? Well, again, everybody has to take a vote and defend it. And if they can defend that vote, then that's up to them. I want to see a bipartisan vote on the infrastructure. And then I do want to support the reconciliation. Uh, there are concerns uh, like anything else. You know, I want to look at it, what's in there. What's the final product? You know, I certainly want to have a say-so as to what the final product is, and and we'll get there. So let's vote on it on the 27th and and see what happens at that time. Talking with Congressman Henry Cuellar of Texas, and I'd like to ask you, while we're talking, Congressman, about a few big issues happening in Texas that are impacting nationally, a lot of politicians, as you know, like to talk about the border like they're experts. Your district actually bumps up against the Rio Grande. And I have to ask you about these images we're seeing of the Border Patrol agents. What should be done about this? 
before we jump the gun, um, keep in mind, Border Patrol does not carry whips. Uh, they did not carry lassos. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've had a horse brigade for many years in Laredo, Del Rio, and other places. So they've been using horses. And again, before we blame the men and women uh, and paint them with the same paintbrush, yes, we'll look at it in a case-by-case basis. If there's a bad apple, then you know we'll go after the bad apple. And I know that there will be investigations on that. But again, we cannot automatically paint uh, the Border Patrol is doing something wrong. Uh, you know, what are they supposed to do? Just stand aside and let anybody just come in? Mm. There is. I mean, we've been using horses for a long time uh, with Border Patrol uh, on it. But again, let's take a take it by a case-by-case basis. And they, they don't carry whips that do not carry lassos yeah. uh, on it. But, uh, you know, if we have to look into this, as the administration has said, let's look into it, but let's not paint brush everybody and Border Patrol. No, and we would never do that here at Bloomberg, and I will note, Congressman, while we're talking... Oh, well, I, sorry, I was not talking about you. I understand. apologize. Understand. Yeah, no, it was not you. I apologize. I just don't want to insinuate anything with the question, and we should note that those images apparently did show Border Patrol agents swinging the reins of the horse, not not whips, but I guess more broadly I should ask you about the people under that bridge. What should we do? Do, do you send all of these people back to Haiti? Well, look, we, we have to follow the law. Uh, if the law says they stay, they stay. If the law says they don't, then we have to enforce it. I mean, we have to enforce the law. That's what President Obama did uh, with Secretary Jay Johnson. That's what the law is. You know, with all due respect, the only ones that come out winning on this are the criminal organizations. They'll charge six, eight, ten thousand dollars a person. And if somebody is returned back because they were promised something by the bad guys, uh, the only ones that come out winning are going to be the criminal organizations. They're the ones that are making billions of dollars on the suffering of these people. But again, if you look at the law, uh, the law says that a earthquake or a, a political assassination of a president is not grounds for asylum. And that's what the asylum uh, law says. Lastly, Congressman, uh, the Democratic leadership in the House is calling for members to vote on a bill that would protect a woman's reproductive rights. The aforementioned Hakeem Jeffries, again, a member of the leadership, talked about this today, and I wonder what you think of this remark. Women across America should have the freedom to make their own reproductive health care decisions. Shouldn't be determined by a bunch of yahoos in Texas. I'm not sure which yahoos the gentleman from New York was referring to, Congressman, but what's your thought on that legislation? Well, I mean, look, a, a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, look, I am Catholic, and I certainly have my, my beliefs on, on, um, uh, on abortion, number one. Number two, uh, you know, the Supreme Court has, uh, has already uh, made that decision years ago. You know, whether they change it, we don't know. Uh, third, what the state legislature, I think that's what he was referring to, and the governor signed this legislation. Mm. What they did is they made bounty hunters on anybody that wants to get an abortion. That is wrong because they're setting a bad uh, precedent. What happens if the next thing they do is somebody passes the law that says anybody that helps a migrant is going to be subjected to $10,000 fine, you know, set a bounty on it, or whatever the social issue is, it sets a bad precedent. So what the state legislature did over there uh, is wrong. If we would do something that would target that legislation where they set up bounties 
then, you know, certainly I know that that will be something that there will be uh, support on that. I have my personal uh, thoughts as the Catholic on abortion. Mm-hmm. I know what the Supreme Court uh, has said, and I know that what the state legislature is sending up bounties is wrong. Before you run, is it going to be a late night tonight? I think uh, the next two weeks are going to be long days. <laughs> you're bringing the cots in. Huh? It's going to be one of those. Well, you're kind, to, uh, you're kind to share your time with us today, Congressman. We'll be watching in the weeks ahead and specifically on September 27th. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Which brings us to the headline on the terminal. House Democrats risk rift by teeing up infrastructure vote first. As you just heard from the Congressman, he helped to secure that deal. Bloomberg now reporting House Democratic leaders plan a Monday vote on the Senate-passed infrastructure bill. And coming up, we assemble the panel with Jim Kessler of Third Way and John Sidalides of Trilogy Advisors. Sound On is brought to you by Barish and McGarry, lawyers for the 9-11 community. For 20 years, they've been fighting for those who continue to get sick from the 9-11 toxins. Free health care and compensation are available. Visit 911victims.com. We'll check the markets, take a look at traffic along the way, so stay right where you are. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Debt ceiling deadline on Bloomberg Radio. Now, lawmakers in the House have voting in their plans tonight. We'll see how late things go. It does appear, though, Democrats' government funding bill that also suspends the debt ceiling will pass. Thanks to lawmakers like the one you just heard, Henry Cuellar. It's important enough we even have a big voiceover guy on it. As we've also discussed, most Republicans aren't planning to go near the debt limit, as underscored today by Congressman Steve Scalise of Louisiana. He's part of the Republican leadership in the U.S. House. Listen to what he said. The the bill that Speaker Pelosi is bringing through this week will not become law. They're going to have to go back to the drawing board. They might have to go to reconciliation. Uh, to address the debt ceiling, which, by the way, right now they're just trying to put a date so you don't know the full amount that they're trying to increase the debt ceiling. Interesting wrinkle. If Democrats put the bill in the reconciliation plan, they need to specify how much as opposed to simply suspending the amount. And that's where we begin with the panel. Jim Kessler of Third Way, former legislative and policy director to Senator Chuck Schumer, is with us once again, along with John Sidaliti, State Department advisor now with Trilogy advisors thanks to you both for being here jim i bet you feel like you've seen this movie before uh does this end up being democrats own problem to handle the debt ceiling it may become that way it's it's not as easy as what congressman scaliza said or what leader mcconnell said because the debt ceiling extension cannot go into the current reconciliation bill that is going through congress it would violate the bird rule So they would have to start an entire new reconciliation process, Mm -hmm. which could take months. So, um, you you know, we're playing with fire on the debt ceiling. It's something Republicans have supported dozens of times in the past. They don't want to do it now just to cause some havoc for Democrats. But I feel like we're like we're juggling with nuclear bombs here and we should just get this easy thing done. That is quite uh, an image, Jim. uh, How would you be advising Senator Schumer right now, Leader Schumer on this, uh, knowing what you just said, what would be the alternative? Well, look, they're going to bring a bill over from the House that has a debt ceiling, debt ceiling extension yeah. and, a, and a bill that normally Republicans would support overwhelmingly. And he's going to try and move that in the Senate. You know, absent that, and it's also funding the government, 
Absent that, you're just going to have to start from, if this doesn't succeed, you're going to have to start from scratch. And the irony is, this is a vote that voters don't really care about either way. You know, they're not focused on the debt ceiling. So it's a shame that Republicans are playing hardball on this right now, but this is a needless cliff and catastrophe we're heading towards. John Sidalides, what do you see as the, the end game here? Is this going to be resolved next couple of days and there's maybe a standalone version at some point, or will this interfere with funding the government? It's almost impossible to predict at this point. I mean, what we really have going on in many ways is an inter-party dispute, as we're describing now, between the Democratic majority and the Republican minority. But we also have the intra-party dispute inside the Democratic Party. And the inability to date of the, the leadership to reconcile the positions of both the progressives who are looking to spend this $3.5 trillion social spending bill, which they see as a compromise from an original $6 trillion bill that Bernie Sanders had supported and the very precarious position it places moderate Democrats in especially those that came in in 2018 to give Nancy Pelosi the speakership, uh, but are districts that President Trump or former President Trump did rather well in or had won on a number of occasions, uh, puts these moderates at risk and also puts Democratic leadership at risk come the 2022 elections. So there's a lot of sorting out to be done both on the technical and legislative sides, as Jim has described, but also, I think, strategically, what is the direction of the Democratic Party? Yeah. And are they willing to go down possibly and defeat next year in order to try to advance some of these uh, short-term, immediate legislative goals? Well, before we get that far, I'm just curious about Monday right now, Jim. As I read, the Democratic leaders do plan to vote Monday, making good on that agreement with moderates on the Senate-passed infrastructure bill. How worried are you that that tips over reconciliation when, when progressives then revolt as promised? So I am optimistic. I believe that in calendar year 2021, uh, Congress will pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill and Democrats will pass a Democrats only reconciliation package that is going to be smaller, significantly smaller than that three point five trillion dollar package. The dates on those things are very uncertain. So next Monday, there's going to be a vote and some progressive lawmakers are going to vote no on that bill. The question is, will Republican lawmakers vote in favor of it, enough of them to pass it? If the same percentage of Republicans vote for it in the House as they did in the Senate, that's 80 Republican votes. And nothing progressives could do could stop that. But it looks like there's going to be nowhere near that number of votes. So that Monday, September 27th vote, I'm not sure what happens, but eventually this bill passes. Well, John, less than a minute here. What's your thought? Are you counting votes for Monday? Uh, I am not counting votes for Monday yet, uh, Joe, but I think Jim is on to a very important point here. The question is going to be how many of the Republicans are willing to come on board. And again, they're going to be dealing with the same type of political uh, questions that Democrats on the progressive and moderate side are facing. Are they willing to potentially risk the wrath of voters, especially in strong Republican districts, to be primaried for voting for a bill that makes it easier for Democrats to possibly pass, (laughs) as Jim predicts, 
a larger social spending bill? Yeah. And if so, they may be putting their own re-elections at risk. John and Jim stay with us for the hour. We go to the U.N. next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Headline on the Bloomberg, Biden urges action on climate and virus in first U.N. speech. His first address to the General Assembly today as the president mapped out what he sees with the challenges and some potential solutions the next decade. A decade that will not include, he says, a cold war with China. We'll talk about it ahead with David DeFury, former State Department official in Baghdad, was foreign policy advisor to the Obama campaign. Another crazy day on the street. You heard the speech in the middle of it all on Bloomberg, President Biden in New York. Traffic was great, right? His first address to the General Assembly with the iconic staging, the soaring backdrop, the green marble. Joe Biden outlined his vision for the next decade. We've ended 20 years of conflict in Afghanistan. And as we close this period of relentless war, we're opening a new era of relentless diplomacy, of using the power of our development aid to invest in new ways of lifting people up around the world. Relentless diplomacy, a turn away from America first. But what impact did the speech have against the backdrop of Afghanistan, not to mention the submarine flap with France and joining us to talk through it all is David Tafuri, former State Department official in Baghdad, was former policy advisor to the Obama campaign in 08. And it's David, great to have you back with us today. Was this speech effective considering the, the, the rough timing for this White House? Thanks so much for having me back. I thought that the speech was effective in the sense that he demonstrated that the U.S. under his leadership tends, intends to be a world citizen to engage in multilateral groups and entities and organizations and seeks to promote lofty goals like reducing the threat of climate change and the pandemic and supporting global health. Uh, The speech talked a lot about what should happen around the globe, but was maybe a bit short on how the U.S. under Biden's leadership will actually make those things happen. Uh, His concrete actions that he discussed to the extent he discussed specific actions. We're all yeah. rooted in multilateralism and the importance to the U.S. in his view of the U.N. and of NATO, of the Quad countries, which are uh, the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia, 
and in rejoining um, treaties that the Trump administration pulled out of, like the Paris Climate Accord, and also rejoining the Human Rights Council at the UN, which Trump also left. David, we're actually getting some sound right now from the White House. I hate to interrupt you, but we're going to listen to President Biden for just a moment. It's part of the pool spray, his conversation as they take some questions. President Biden and the prime minister of the U.K., Boris Johnson. Let's listen live. On the Harry Dunn uh, case, which is a very, very, very sad case, and everybody's sympathies are with uh, the family of, uh, of Harry Dunn. Uh, I know that the president has been personally trying to, uh, to move things along, and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm grateful for, for that. Uh, we're going to take uh, we're going to take one more question. I'm going to go. To, to, uh, <laughs> um, President Trump said that the UK was in front of the queue when it came to a, to a trade deal. You seem to have a different approach. Is that because of your heritage, your concern about uh, the Irish Protocol? Is that what's holding it back when it comes to doing this deal with the UK? There are two separate issues. On the deal with the UK, that's continued to be discussed. But on the protocols, I feel very strongly about those. We spent an enormous amount of time and effort in the United States. It was a a major bipartisan effort made. And uh, I, uh, I would not at all like to see nor, I might add, would many of my Republican colleagues like to see a change in the uh, Irish courts, the end result having a closed border again. And that, that is absolutely right. And, uh, and I, I, on that point, Joe, you know, we are, we are completely at one. And I think nobody wants to see anything that uh, interrupts or uh, unbalances the the Belfast Good Friday uh, Accords. That's the uh, Belfast Good Friday Agreement. That's that's the. It's fun getting the press out of the Oval Office. Uh, as we just put a very quick ear on the conversation uh, with Joe Biden and uh, Boris Johnson took the train. It is usually just the same amount of time door to door, as they say. Took the train from New York. He was at the U.N. down to Washington. The president bookending his day uh, with this uh, bilateral. Uh, David Tafuri uh, with us on Sound On, former State Department official. uh, was foreign policy advisor to the Obama campaign. Thanks for standing by for that. Uh, How important is that relationship with Great Britain following this dust up with France over the submarines? We have about a, a minute left here, David. Well, that has been and will for a long time be the most important relationship for the U.S. in many ways. One of our oldest allies, the U.S. and U.K. see eye to eye on so many things. And Trump, excuse me, uh, Biden is making an effort to try to strengthen our relationships with our traditional European allies. And that's what you see there. Uh, The dust up with France obviously also makes it important. I think the U.K. can help mediate that. And my expectation is that uh, the U.S. and, and France will will be able to get past uh, the, the, the problems that have resulted as a result of the submarine deal. How significant was uh, the commitment to climate change funding uh, doubling the U.S. expenditure here, David? Where's the money going to come from? Well, I think that's a good question. And again, as I mentioned at the outset, a lot of what Biden spoke about in his speech 
was, you know, setting forth goals, but not discussing how we're going to reach those goals, not discussing how the U.S. is going to accomplish those goals, you know, financially, and not discussing really the strategy for the U.S. to take leadership on the, you know, significant reductions in emissions that the U.S. wants to see happen, both here in the U.S. and around the world. So not a lot of detail in this speech like that. David Tafuri, we do appreciate the insights. Former State Department official spent time in Baghdad and was foreign policy advisor to the Obama campaign. This is Sound On. We reassemble the panel next, get their take on the speech today and what we just heard from the Oval Office. Jim Kessler and John Sidalides back with us in the panel coming up. So stay here. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Climate and COVID looming large today at the U.N. in New York. And the president spoke to both as a vaccination van was parked outside. They actually call it that, offering people J&J shots or a test if they wanted. And President Biden speaking inside to the fight against the virus. The United States has put more than $15 billion toward global COVID response, the global COVID response. We've shipped more than 160 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine to other countries. This includes 130 million doses from our own supply and the first tranches of a half a billion doses of Pfizer vaccine we purchased to donate through COVAX. And we reassemble the panel to talk about elements of the speech. This would be good politics, right? Jim Kessler is with us from Third Way, former legislative and policy director to Senator Chuck Schumer. We're also joined by John Sidalides, rounding out the panel, State Department advisor now with Trilogy Advisors. Jim, it's a good story to tell, even though the U.S. is often criticized for for hoarding the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Biden gets high marks on vaccines, both domestically and abroad. It's one of the strong points of his presidency. It's one of the reasons why the economy has shot back in this country. We were stalling at home here. He's trying to do something on that. But I thought this was a very strong case for him to make, and it was the right case for him to make. John, is that a good place to go in a room like this? We are making some big promises. I realize only 3% of Africa, as we've been reminded recently from this administration, have had access to the vaccine. Uh, There are a lot of countries who are getting shipments from the U.S. You know, my own sense is that when you have a speech that's being given at the U.N. General Assembly plenary session, you look more towards the kind of geopolitical upheaval that the global landscape is going through right now. I mean, we're undergoing transformations of political alliances and regional balances of power, Joe. Mm -hmm. And I commend the president for focusing on the, I think, as he put it, managing shifts in global power dynamics and shaping the rules of the world and facing the threat of global terrorism. I'm perplexed as to why he would prioritize defeating COVID when we know it's not going to be defeated. Uh, It's unrealistic. This is going to become an endemic. And it would have been better, I think, if the president had focused on how to prevent future pandemics and specifically on calling out China for not working with the World Health Organization, with the United States, to prevent a regional outbreak from becoming a global pandemic. 
and also how we never again lock down entire societies and economies because of this kind of a pandemic. So he, he, I think he emphasized some very important issues. I would rather he prioritized uh, geopolitical upheaval over COVID and climate policy because my concern on climate policies, it's very well intended, but we never address where the money's going to go and how do we ensure that U.S. taxpayer funds don't go to corrupt dictatorships, fiefdoms and the like, simply looking to grab global Western finance. Isn't, though, John, it worth taking a victory lap on the country that came up with the vaccines and the millions of doses that have been shipped out? There's got to be some good news in this speech. Absolutely. And the United States deserves full credit for Operation Warp Speed and for the manner in which this administration has been able to distribute vaccines. But I don't think that's the number one issue that we talk about at the U.N. Mm -hmm. plenary session. I think there's an important place for that in the speech. But what's more important is the future of the world. And this is going to hinge on the U.S.-China relationship. And this relationship is going to forge almost every important diplomatic, financial, commercial, and security relationship around the world for years and decades to come. And I think President Biden's vision for the next several decades would have been more appropriate at the top of the speech. No, I so didn't. I don't want to suggest he led with, with COVID. That that was not the, the first thing out of his mouth, to be fair. That's what I found perplexing, yes. Uh, uh, Jim, uh, let's talk about climate. That was a big part of the speech here. As President Biden committed in April $5.7 billion uh, to help uh, support low-income countries uh, with climate change, the president now promising to double financial support and said he'd work with Congress. You spent enough time in the halls of Congress, Jim, to know uh, how tentative a promise like that might sound. Where's the money going to come from? Well, it'll probably come from an appropriations bill. Um, it's never easy to get that kind of money, but I, but it's possible. I mean, compared to some of the other numbers we're talking about, that that is not an astronomical number there. But I think to your larger question, this you know, we're, this next couple of years is really a make-or-break couple of years on climate, both domestically and internationally. Domestically, it's the reconciliation bill plus the infrastructure bill. Mm-hmm. And internationally, it's not just getting back into some of these agreements, but really implementing the policies that are going to drastically reduce the, the carbon footprint of much of the world, including China. I mean, China has started in the right direction, but that's a huge area where, you know, they're now the largest polluter in the world. So um, this is the big challenge, and he spoke to it, and that was important. And President Xi was not in New York today, for what it's worth. I'd like to ask you both about the message on China, though. We heard a preview on this from the White House yesterday, and today the president said himself that we are not seeking a Cold War, that we are not in a Cold War with China. Competition uh, is what the White House is, you know, a close competitor of ours, not conflict is what the White House is seeing here. John, how would we know if a Cold War was getting started? Something we already have one underway. Well, uh, Joe, some might posit that uh, the Chinese Communist Party has already launched a Cold War against so the United States and, and against the global West. And this began with the desire to take over the great uh, technological breakthrough advancements of the next uh, 10 to 15 years under a policy called Made in China 2025. And they announced China Standards 2035, where they intend to set all of the future platforms, norms and standards for all the major technologies, 
in the decades ahead. And they're also looking to decouple from the U.S. economy to wean their economy from dependence on Silicon Valley. So hmm. this has begun in many ways, and we haven't even talked about the military belligerence of the Chinese Navy in the South China Sea against its neighbors, against Japan, against Taiwan. And so we're responding to what I think has been an initiated, if not hot war, certainly a cool war emanating from Beijing against its neighbors and against the global international order. It does, Jim, remind us of, uh, you know, the the, the in-flight interceptions that would happen from time to time and even still do with Russia. Do you think we're, we're in the starts of a Cold War with China already, Jim Kessler? I'm not sure the analogy holds. I think this is going to be a very unique and very different type of competition slash conflict. These economies, forget the decoupling, these economies are so intertwined. In decoupling, you can only do it on the margins. Um, so these are, their economies are both immensely large. China has an interest in the United States keeping the world peace out there because it profits off of America's stability. At the same time, China you know, wants to spread its digital authoritarian version of quasi-capitalism throughout the world. So we're in an unprecedented situation and an unprecedented rival that we're going to have to figure this out, and China also, every step of the way. I'm not sure the Russia Cold War analogy quite fits here. Yeah, Jim Kessler, John Sidalides with us for the panel. And one more thought, as it was Tip O'Neill, right, who said all politics is local. And it sure felt that way in the Oval Office today as Boris Johnson got him. I mentioned this earlier, he got his way from New York to Washington to meet with the president, the U.N., to the Oval Office, riding Amtrak. And, of course, he's sitting there with Amtrak Joe, who's looking to put a lot of money into this train system. Here's what it sounded like. You came down on Amtrak, is that right? I did. And, well, and, and you, you are a living deity. I am. I've traveled millions of miles. You think I'm joking? They love you. Uh, well, they should. I travel more on Amtrak. Than I think if I were a conductor, I'd be number one in seniority. <laughs> it's good politics again, I suppose. Jim Kessler, does that uh, help to get a couple billion dollars for Amtrak next month? I hope so. And I just want to say that the Amtrak cheeseburger is a underrated delicacy on the train i love riding that train boy i'll tell you what the line's always too long for me in the in the cafe car john how about you (laughs) Uh, there is bipartisan support for a federal rail network Uh, i think that's going to be a critical component of what hopefully will be a successful uh, trillion dollar infrastructure vote next week it's coming up you think we get that vote? They, they've promised it, Jim. Does that happen on Monday? And I guess a better question is, does it actually go to the president's desk after it's passed? It will definitely get to the president's desk. I am not certain it gets to the president's desk next week. Wow. So we could still have a little, uh, little bit of a, a ping pong here between the two. Do you see them holding off on a reconciliation vote, John? Uh, Look, politics is not only local, it can be very, very uncertain. And I think that's really what we're looking at over the next couple of weeks. I think Jim's prediction is fascinating, and uh, I'm not going against it. Yeah, they pass the bill, then they sit on it for a minute, keep it on ice. If not a cool war, according to John Sidalides and Jim Kessler, thank you both for making up our panel here on the Tuesday edition of Sound On. 
We'll let you know how things play with the vote tonight. Government funding, debt ceiling. I'll meet you back here tomorrow on the fastest hour in politics. Where does it go? I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.